Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive religious community, deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. beloveds. Welcome each and all of you on this sultry July 17th. Not so sultry in here as it was a little while ago. We are First Universalist Church of Minneapolis since 1859. I am Kate Tucker, one of your ministers emerita, returning for a few weeks this summer, and it is a joy to see you, to be with you, and also with those of us um, who are online. And actually, today online, we have um, guests from the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Gwinnett in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Uh, that's a little, a little northeast of Atlanta. Welcome to you folks. Love is the spirit of this church, we say, and service is its law. This is a faith home. Whatever your age, skin color, gender identification, background, ability, this place was made for you. We hold that all are precious, all are gifted, all deserve a chance at life, a chance to unfold our powers, and so we commit ourselves to listening, learning, and working to end oppression and discrimination wherever we find it, within us, among us, and beyond us. And this Wednesday evening at 7, we'll have a chance to learn about REP, that's R-E-P, REP, or Relationships Evolving Possibilities. REP is a network of dedicated abolitionists showing up to support others in moments of crisis. Rep is experimenting with an alternative to 911 for nonviolent crises in Minneapolis. This church could become a faithful action partner with this group. So join us Wednesday to learn more. Um, and again, that's at 7 under the tent. Um, Susan Raffo and First Universalist members will host an exciting and promising project. Today, musicians Franco Holder and Amy Bryant are with us. Thank you. The Reverend, the Reverend Andrea Johnson is with us, and we're grateful for her pastoral presence. Zoe Mulvihill is with us for a story, a true story. 
Thanks always to our tech folks, Tyler and John, another John, not the John we're used to. Um, so now let's settle ourselves, sitting comfortably. aware of the space over our heads, the floor under our feet, the space around us, the space within us, aware of the companions seated near us, aware of our breath of life, aware as we sit in these pews that the ground below is part of the homeland, of Lakota and Ojibwe and other indigenous peoples who have stewarded this land through the centuries and to whom we owe deep honor, ongoing reparations, and honest storytelling about this place. We come to this time and place to renew our faith in the holiness, goodness, and beauty of life, to reaffirm the way of the open mind and the willing heart, to rekindle the flame of memory and hope. Come, let us worship together. Please join me in saying the words for the lighting of our chalice. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. One of the most amazing stories about transformation is the story of how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. When I was a kid, we had a patch of milkweed in our backyard, and I would love to check the leaves for leaves or caterpillars, and later, for butterflies. Maybe some of you have milkweed in your neighborhoods or yards too. Did you know that there are over 17,000 different species of butterflies? And they all come in different colors and patterns, but they have one thing in common. They all used to be caterpillars. So how does this happen? Well, butterflies go through four stages called metamorphosis, a word which comes from the Latin word for changing shape. So let me tell you about these four amazing stages. Stage one, the egg stage. An adult butterfly will fly from plant to plant, and when she finds the perfect one, she'll lay her eggs on it. These, there are tiny little caterpillars living inside those eggs. Stage two, the larva stage. During the larva stage, the hungry caterpillar crawls out of the egg and eats its eggshell. Then it eats the leaves on the plant it could just hatch from and the plants around it. The caterpillar is really hungry, and its one job is to grow bigger and bigger and bigger until it's too big for its own exoskeleton. As the caterpillar grows, it splits its skin, and it sh sheds about four to five times. Did you know that caterpillars can grow 100 times their size during this stage? For example, a recently hatched egg a recently hatched caterpillar is a little bit bigger than a pinhead, but it will grow two inches long in several weeks. After all this growing and regrowing, the caterpillar is tired and ready to take a break. 
Then comes stage three, the pupa stage. In the pupa stage, the caterpillar finds a sturdy branch to hang upside down from. It molds or sheds its exoskeleton one final time, regrowing a new layer called the chrysalis. How many of you have seen a chrysalis before? Okay, almost everyone. I think they're pretty cool. Inside the chrysalis, the caterpillar isn't really a caterpillar anymore, but a pupa. A pupa is an insect when it's in between being a baby, like a caterpillar, and an adult, like a butterfly. This, this chrysalis has a hard shell to protect the soft pupa inside while it changes into its adult form. Inside, it regrows six legs, antenna, and adds wings. The pupa stays inside the chrysalis for 10 or more days, and then one day, the chrysalis moves, and it slowly cracks open, and a butterfly crawls out. Well, a really soggy butterfly. Its wings are crumpled and wet. Then comes stage four, the butterfly stage. Once the chrysalis is out, once the butterfly is out of the chrysalis, blood will start pumping to its wings, which help them to straighten and dry out. Now, the butterfly is ready to fly, fly to find some food. 10 plus days without the food means this butterfly is ready to eat. Does anybody know what butterflies eat? Specifically kids in the room, do you guys know? Yeah, what do they eat? Milkweed, okay, yeah, what else do they eat? And flowers, what do they eat from flowers? Yeah. Nectar, exactly, yeah. Um, so butterflies drink nectar, which is a sugary liquid found in flowers. And sometimes they like to eat rotting fruit or even dead bugs. Butterflies take in their food through a long tube called a proboscis, sort of like how we drink milkshakes or a smoothie through a straw. But they can't taste food through their proboscis. Can you guess what they taste with? Their feet. When a butterfly lands, they can tell if the flower is sweet by tasting it with their tips of their feet. If they like the way it tastes, they will drink the flower's nectar. Now full of food to keep it strong, the butterfly is now ready to be a butterfly. And that is an amazing story of transformation, of how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. This week, our offering goes to support Beacon Interfaith Housing. First Universalist is a member of Beacon Interfaith Housing Collaborative, made up of over 100 metro area congregations working together to ensure all people have a home. Beacon's work is in three areas. First, a shelter program called Families Moving Forward for families currently experiencing homelessness. Second, building affordable and supportive housing in the metro area with congregational public support and advocacy. Beacon has built dozens of beautiful and affordable apartments complexes around the, the metro area for those with little or no income. And third, Beacon organizes congregants like us to powerfully advocate for change, including change to laws and funding. These help ensure that all people in Minnesota have a home. Together, we're changing the conversation and policies at the local, regional, and state level to make home a reality for everyone. We all experience a stronger, more prosperous community by investing in home. 
This work supports our church's commitment to racial justice as homelessness impacts communities of color at a disproportionately high rate. Please use the information on the screen uh, for the various ways you can give. I invite you to give as generously as you are able, and I thank you for your support. you now to take a deep breath with me to breathe in peace and breathe out love in this space that we have created together you might place your feet on the solid ground and feel your connection to all that is to the wellspring of creation to this spinning earth to the cycle of life and to the ancestors who have come before us. Let us put down the weight of the world, knowing that we need not carry it alone. Come into the stillness and feel the love and strength of this gathered congregation within, among, and beyond us. Congregation, will you pray with me in the spirit of life and love, the God of our being and becoming? We are grateful for the health and strength to be gathered in community. Grateful for a space where we can share our rage and our heartbreak, our joys and our sorrows. A place where we might know ourselves beloved just as we are, at home in this beautiful, amazing, and even terrifying universe, shown to us this past week in photos from the Webb telescope Photos of a galaxy cluster, a stellar nursery, and a portrait of our early universe just through the Big Bang, teeming with thousands of baby galaxies. The Carina Nebula with its dramatic pillars of hot ionized gas looks like craggy mountains on a moonlit evening. 
These images help to remind us of nature's unimaginable vastness, ceaseless change, and the radical contingency that has us asking the question of why there is something rather than nothing. May these images arouse in us the spiritual affections of awe, wonder, gratefulness, amazement, and devotion to our planet Earth, our beloved home. Let us be awakened to the preciousness of life in the here and now. Each time we gather for worship, we also lift up the joys and sorrows of our first Universalist community. We hold Caden Colton in our hearts this morning. Caden was preparing for gender-affirming surgery later this week, but contracted COVID, and so now their long-awaited and hoped-for surgery will be delayed until the fall. We pray for a speedy recovery from COVID and patience during the wait. Our protesting spirits are with all those who will be marching for abortion access later this afternoon at the Capitol. We pray for energy, hydration, and increased awareness to this crucial fight for reproductive justice. I now invite you to speak aloud or type in the chat the names of those people and communities that you would lift up this morning in love. Holding all these things that have been named out loud in the chat or in the silence of your heart, we also pray that the grip of addiction be loosened, that the weight of oppression be lightened. We pray that truth be told, that joy break through, and that love make every suffering bearable for us all. May it be so, and amen. just fills me up to see your faces, or even part of your faces. <clears throat> a woman I know, a radical Catholic community leader, traveled to Le Puy, France, to the cathedral there, to sit in the presence of one of the most beloved figures of the Black Madonna. The Le Puy 
Black Madonna is a two centuries old copy of a more ancient one which was destroyed in the French Revolution. She is basically the Egyptian goddess Isis. History simply renamed, Christianized her. The Black Madonna is called by many names and revered by a rainbow of cultures. She's a champion of the oppressed and a healer of the harmed, and she never fails those who call on her. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, a person I'll say more about later, tells how her own grandmother, Katerin, kept a ritual from her ethnic Swabian tribe, a people who look for the Black Madonna wherever they live. Katerin always kept several fires going at her house in the forest, the cook fire, the furnace, boiler fire, the outdoor fire for smoking game. After every fire had burnt the hardwood and softwood logs, Katerin would rake around in the remains of the fire with her iron poker, throwing orange sparks and asking, is there any Night Maria in here? Because sometimes she'd find those special pieces of burnt wood, round at the head and wider in the middle and draping to the bottom, making the feminine form the Holy Mother who withstood the fire. Grandmother Katerin would pull these out of the fire and let them cool, and once cooled, these Madonnas would carry prayers between heaven and earth, prayers for us to imagine and act in the service of goodness. And because the Black Holy Mother also has wisdom and understanding about repairing the land and making things grow, Katerin would take these little burnt figures out to her field garden and add them to her half-buried fence of Night Marias, placing them so they faced the fruit trees where the pears would grow bigger than softballs. She who cannot be extinguished. Ancient images of the Black Madonna often have wide open eyes, round, almost lidless eyes, so she appears all-seeing. It is said she sees in both worlds, the visible and the invisible worlds. She sees in daylight. She also shines a black light to see what can't be seen by day. Having been through the fire, she's a being of vision and indestructible healing love. This morning, I speak as a white woman who came of age during the civil rights and anti-war and feminist movements of the 1960s and 70s. I speak as a person with a uterus, intending to speak to others who have a uterus, to those who have had a uterus, to those who wish or wish not to have a uterus, to those who cherish someone who has a uterus, or to those who emerged from a uterus. Who did I miss? <laughs> three weeks ago, um, three days after SCOTUS, that was, three weeks ago, after SCOTUS struck down Roe versus Wade, I said I'd address anger on a future Sunday. This is that Sunday, and I've had some struggles with the topic, which is, of course, too big and too relevant and raw, anger. And besides, in my last homily, I offered you the only summary I know. 
I started by quoting poet March Piercy, who said, a good anger acted upon is beautiful as lightning and swift with power. And then I ended with this prayer by my colleague, Reverend Jan Eller Isaacs. Spirit of life, if it is love growing in us, then fan the flames. And if the fire of love includes acts of rage against the pain of so many, let the fire burn. But let us not waste our powers for anything less than love. So the summary is, there's such a thing as good anger. And a good anger is an anger fueled by love and wielded for the sake of love and justice. So there you have it. Enjoy your day. <laughs> no, no. Of course there's more. I named this homily, Gather the Spirit, Harvest the Power. Words from the song we sang together this morning, number 347 in the gray hymnal, because it feels important these days to find and harvest good power, good anger, and how can we do that if we don't gather the spirit? And by that I mean gather the spirits, because I can't talk about good anger without talking about teachers. Yours and mine, those who show us by their lives what a good anger looks like and sounds like. I have needed teachers growing up in a father-knows-best household where anger was felt to be an unwelcome intruder, threatening, not something to explore. We didn't yet have a Mr. Rogers inviting us to sing. What do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could bite? When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. Anger wasn't a thing to trust, and it certainly wasn't seen as a tool for understanding and compassion. So for me, later in life, there was a lot of work to do, a lot of counseling co-pays. <laughs> but there were teachers. And this is where, if we weren't seated in these pews, but in movable chairs, this is where I can see us gathered in the sacred circle around the chalice, which is in the center. And as we name those who've taught us good anger, with every name we drop, we add a drop of fuel to the flame. You're seeing faces. I would name my fifth grade teacher Mrs. Heim. I would name feminists of the 70s and the 60s, civil rights saints of the 60s and onward. John Lewis would be there and James Baldwin and R RGB, RBG. Men have been teachers, poets and politicians have been teachers, artists have been teachers. My brave colleagues in ministry have been teachers. You have been my teachers. Ancestors can be teachers, spiritual ancestors. For me, Margaret Fuller, 1810 to 1850, our Unitarian foremother, one of the transcendentalist group. Margaret, who could speak hard truths to Ralph Waldo Emerson and still stay in relationship and who spoke truth to the dominant culture in her book, Woman in the 19th Century. Gather the spirits, harvest the power. One who has taught me about good anger is Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Jungian analyst, storyteller, and post-trauma specialist. 
I mentioned her earlier when I spoke of the black Madonna, she who cannot be extinguished. Estes says, here's what anger is, energy. Here's what love is, energy. Here's what fear is, energy. Here's what happiness is, energy. And here she says are three things to do with the red cloud of anger, the fire of anger. First, feel it and name it. Just feeling anger full force with a pillow to pound, even that can be terrifying at first and necessary and we learn we don't die and we taste freedom. Second, getting well acquainted with our anger, using all the means at hand, therapy, spiritual practices, running, working the 12 steps, hashing it out with friends or in the journal, learning what triggers it and what actions it wants from us. As Estes says, the idea is not to seal ourselves in a room with our rage and incinerate. She's the one who said, and I quoted her a couple weeks ago, rage is not like a kidney stone. If you wait long enough, it will pass. No, no. It is a substance waiting for transformative efforts. We want to use it to change, develop, and protect. We want something to show for feeling angry. Third, about the times when it's our moral duty to reveal our incisors, to defend territory, to say this far and no farther, Estes says, though these times are rare, there is definitely a time to let loose all our firepower. It has to be in response to a serious offense, an offense against body, soul, or spirit. All reasonable avenues for change have to be attempted first. If these fail, then we have to choose the right time. When we pay attention to the instinctual self, she says, we know when it is time. To me, this means that our instinctual selves can smell treachery. I can't talk about good anger without talking about treachery, and by treachery I mean evil. Good anger as a response to evil. Evil is, is not a theological concept Unitarian Universalists speak of much, although the very first hymn in our gray book is titled, May Nothing Evil Cross This Door. I remember sitting with a group of Unitarian Universalists for a conversation about evil, what we believe it is, what we think it might be. And after an hour and a half of lively sharing, we had a list of three things we called the hallmarks of evil. First, evil is self-serving. That's the small s self, not the large s soul self. And in service to the small s self, it employs deceit. Second, evil lacks empathy. Third, evil steals life. It says this other person's body or soul is mine and I can decree and dispose as I wish as serves me. Evil is live spelled backwards. And since treachery and evil have always been with us and likely always will be, I can't talk about good anger without talking about tears. 
and the spiritual hygiene of grief, of sorrow, of weeping. This poem by Alice Walker. I tell you, chickadee, I am afraid of people who cannot cry. Tears left unshed turn to poison in the ducts. Ask the next soldier you see enjoying a massacre if this is not so. People who do not cry are victims of soul mutilation paid for in Marlboros and trucks. Resist. Violence does not work except for the one who pays your salary, who knows if you could still weep, you would not take the job. You know, I wonder the groups who stormed the Capitol, how much unmetabolized grief lives under the rage. And for that matter, what storehouses of sorrow buried within the overculture of this nation. Overculture, the name credited to Native Studies educator Sarah Hutchinson. For those of us born into the overculture, it's a good time to gather the spirits of those who know how to weep and still go on. So I can't talk about a good anger without talking about transformation. Life is an invitation to transformation, as with caterpillar to butterfly. I think we have more than four stages. There is a time in the goo. Estes says her many readers write and ask her for the secret of the creative life, meaning the life of depth and meaning. And she says, I'd be most happy to tell you the secret as I know it. Here's the secret. A life of meaning and depth is fed and maintained by sitting in the fire without anesthesia. Hold it, you say. That's not the kind of secret I wanted. Isn't there some different secret besides this one? She says, perhaps there are others, but I do not know them. After following many possibilities, this is the one secret I return to time and again. This is our challenge to hold two worlds of spirit and matter together as mates, even though we might be torn hurt, lost, and yearning to go back to an earlier time. Even though we might be ambivalent or confused, when these two are thus held, there is always an explosion, and this we call transformation. Transformation is filled with two kinds of fire, a fire that burns down anything in its path that is combustible, and a fire that builds up from the ashes all manner of abilities and visions these being more sturdy, more refined than ever before. The persons who have stayed long enough in the fire, these you will be able to tell on sight. Look for evidence of a great storm having risen, blown hard, and finally passed over. Harvest the power, we sing. Our separate fires will kindle one flame. Our separate fires. Three or four years ago, even I think before she started writing her book, Take What You Need, I spoke with your Reverend Jen Crow about how the fire of suffering transforms us. She offered the word annealing, A-N-N-E-A-L-I-N-G, annealing, the annealing fire. In metallurgy, to anneal is to subject metal first to great heat and then slow cooling and sometimes reheating and further cooling, to temper it, that is, to both toughen it and, paradoxically, to make it less brittle, to toughen and soften both. With Jen's permission,
to speak of this. Jen gave me that word annealing. Jen, whose house fire was only a searing catastrophe for her and her family. And yet, because Jan makes a practice of being open to grace, over the next months of grief and disorientation and exhausted slogging, what happened was that family called on helpers and helpers arrived. You arrived with skills, resources, food, clothing, tenderness, fierceness, commitment, hope. And these helpers held that hurting family in a chalice of love. And over the months, Jen will tell you, something like a kneeling happened in her. And to her, as she says, it was a kneeling fire, K-N-E-E, -E, as in brought to your knees, a kneeling fire. Inside, she became more capacious and pliable, and outside, more able in strength. Someone has said, if suffering were enough to bring wisdom, we would all be wise because we all suffer. But it's suffering held by love that enables the transformation that sets us free. Finally, I can't talk about good anger without talking about trust. When Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, sat before a Senate subcommittee in 1969, making a pitch for funding for a little public TV show called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He said to the chair, Senator Pastore, one of the first things a child in a healthy family learns is trust, and I trust you will read my whole statement, which is too long for me to read here. He said, I'm concerned about what is being delivered to children in this country through the TV. He said, the cost of one of my shows is $6,000, an amount which pays for less than two minutes of cartoon, or as he said, animated bombardment. He said, we don't have to bop somebody over the head to have drama on the screen. My show deals with the inner drama of childhood, such things as getting a haircut, and feelings about brothers and sisters, and the kind of anger that arises in simply simple family situations. He said, I think if we show two people working out their feelings, it would be much more dramatic than gunfire. Then he recites the lines from his songs. What do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could bite? That first line, he said, came straight from a child. And in the song, he says, it's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong, to be able to do something else instead and think this song. And what a good feeling to feel like this, to know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. He said, we've got to have more of this neighborhood of care that says, I like you just the way you are, that says feelings are mentionable and manageable, a neighborhood of care. He got the $20 million. And of course, he's talking about us here, what we aim at, what we are, what we pray to be, a neighborhood of care, a community of trust, a sanctuary for one another, where we cherish that holy, instinctual self that helps us become what we can, where we can gather our spirits and teach one another 
and expect and allow and honor our transformations and bring our sorrow, our tears, our fears, and call on one another and call out to one another, knowing that the one who cannot be extinguished goes by many names, some of them ours. So be it and amen. As we glimpse the good that is and the good that is yet to be, may comfort and courage live in us as we go our ways in peace. Blessings to you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.